Good morning. I'm uh, thrilled to be back in the Gospel of Mark, so take your copy of the Scriptures and join me in Mark chapter 3. Uh, we are in a series going through the book of Mark entitled, Follow Jesus Immediately. Uh, the pace of Mark, the style of Mark is fast. It's a fast-paced a biography about Jesus and a massive takeaway is that we are to follow Jesus immediately and we'll continue to see it over and over and over again as we explicate uh, the gospel of, of Mark. Just to remind you where we're at in Mark and to place you in context, in chapter 3 we learn that Jesus is a master apologist. In chapter 4 we are about to see that Jesus uh, is a master teacher, and in chapter 5, this section of Mark, we're going to see that he is a master evangelist. Those are the big themes of each of the chapters. We'll move slower than that because we want to understand all of the breadth of the text before us uh, this morning. And as you know, we're kind of in part two of what we studied uh, last time. We studied a portion of this actual text that we're going to look at this morning. We, stu we studied the beginning and the end, and then now we're going to look at the middle. And let me remind you of kind of our flowing outline in Mark chapter 3, which really began um, there in verse 20 and goes all the way to 35. At first, we, we saw that Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Uh, today, we're going to see that the religious leaders thought he was demon-possessed. But actually, as we concluded last time, we'll see that Jesus is Lord. And we're following a trilemma. The trilemma uh, was uh, first taught, uh, the trilemma was first taught to us by C.S. Lewis when he used that phrase, Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's a trilemma, different from a dilemma, two uh, conflicting uh, questions. But this is a trilemma. Jesus, for all of us, we have to answer that. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. If you want to use that frame, the last time we saw that Jesus was accused of being a lunatic. His own family thought he was crazy, right? And they came to do an intervention and to bring him home. And uh, it was just, a, they just thought he was a crazy man. And uh, we unpack that. Now we're going to see that the religious leaders, the scribes in particular, uh, think he's, uh, he, he's uh, a liar, that he's demon-possessed, that he gets his authority from Satan himself. And so this is what we're studying today. This is kind of what we're unpacking. If you want a title for today, it would be In League with the Devil. So his opponents, the religious left, believe that he's in league with the devil. He's in cahoots with the devil, and that's where he gets his power. And we'll unpack all of that today. But we're following this trilemma, liar, lunatic, or Lord. So we're on the liar now this morning. He's in league with the devil, Mark uh, chapter 3. Let's look at verse, um, verse 20 and just read all of this section just to remind ourselves because we've kind of broken it up. And I want to remind you of a literary device that we're looking at. And this is why we're approaching it this way. It's what they call an ABA. So it's a story inside of a story. He starts out with his family coming to do an intervention and it ends with that. And it's sandwiched 
between there is another story, and it's the story of the scribes accusing him of working for uh, the devil himself. And so it's an ABA, or what they call in theology, a Markin sandwich. So it's a story inside of a story, and that's why we're kind of taking this approach and doing two weeks rather than just one on that, because there's a story inside of the story. Today, we're going to look at the story inside the story. But take a look at it. Verse 20, read with me. And he came home, and, and, and a crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. This is one of the problems. There's frenzy. Crazy crowds in Capernaum. He's at Peter's house in Capernaum. They've returned. Crazy crowds continue to follow him. That gets to his family. And his family's just thinking he's a Jewish carpenter. Like, why are all these people following our our son and, and the brothers, the, the four brothers, are, are kind of like, what is going on? And so they're going to do an intervention. They're going to bring him home, kind of talk him down. And, uh, and it's because of this frenzy. The frenzy is so great that they can't even get a meal. It's so intense and it's so busy. And uh, the character you may have of Jesus in your mind, because you saw some uh, pictures when you were a kid or something on a wall is, you know, he's sitting there with flowing locks of hair, petting sheep, and it's on the side of a mountain. It's actually quite different. It's extremely intense. It's all day long, all day strong. Uh, crowds, people gathering, people reaching out and touching him. It's not a, a time of relaxation at all. It's a, it's a very intense time. And every time we transition and mark at his pace, He's moving really fast. Every time there's a transition, he brings up the crazy crowds that follow Jesus, as you can see in verse 20. When his people heard of this, his people being his family, heard this, they went out to take custody of him, and they were saying, he's lost his senses. He's crazy. He's lost his mind. All right? There's the first group of people in the text, his family. He has four half-brothers. So his mom, Mary, and his family think he's crazy. They should know better. The second group we're introduced is the scribes, which we're about to read about now, which is the sandwich, the middle section here. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the very ruler of the demons. And so Jesus called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables or stories. How could Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. It's civil war. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's finished. For no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder its property, steal its property, unless he first binds the strong man, ties the strong man up, and then he can steal or plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they might utter. And here's the trick. Here's the, the interesting issue we'll discover today. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, eternal consequences, but is guilty of eternal sin. Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So that's the meat in the middle of the Mark and sandwich. 
Now we return. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, my true family, my spiritual family. Who's in the spiritual family? Who's in the kingdom of God? Verse 35. But whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Again, we're looking at two groups of people. His family, which should know better. They have been around him. Uh, Mary, his mother, uh, knows that she has a special son. Uh, four brothers growing up in the home. He never sinned, the Bible states. So that would have been an awkward kind of familial relationships among the brothers, you know, uh, never tattling, uh, never pointing out flaws, you know, so certainly they should have known better. And then the scribes were sent down from Jerusalem. They had been deputized to uh, come down from Jerusalem, from the temple, from the seat of authority uh, to investigate uh, Jesus. They should know better. Uh, they are lawyer theologians. Um, they apply the law of God. They take the law. They study it, and then they, they apply it. They, they, they make application of the Torah, and uh, they should know better because all of the Torah points to Jesus. They, they should have, frankly, known better, but they're blind as well, and they're going to bring accusation uh, to him. So his family calls him insane. Uh, they are physically, literally physically, the way the text reads, going to take him out of Capernaum, bring him home to Nazareth, and talk him down and talk some sense into him and, and and they can't believe all these deity statements he's making he's healing people great crowds are following him and this just wasn't who he was as he grew up he he, he lived in kind of obscurity and all of a sudden he's got this massive uh, popularity this supposed popularity and they want to to to, to deal with that and so uh, jesus uh, deals with his family and he when they arrive at the house to get him he, he's asked to go out and meet them. The crowd is so big around him. He, he just uses it as a teaching opportunity. He wasn't trying to be rude. He wasn't being sarcastic. He simply stated, you are my true family. If you have trusted Christ, if you have believed on me, if you've asked for the forgiveness of sins, you've repented and believed, you're my true family. And true family, spiritual family, is better than blood family. It doesn't mean you don't love your blood family, you don't honor your blood family uh, or, or your friends, but your true family is your spiritual family because it determines your eternal status, it determine, determines your eternal destiny, and so spiritual relationships are superior to blood relationships. That's all he's trying to say, and then he says, this is how you know if you're in the family, if you're in the true spiritual family, for whoever does, verse 35, the will of God he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And we noted that he added sister in there. That would have been huge because women were, were, were not treated fairly uh, in the first century. And so to even drop that in, it shows his heart for all of the, the population there um, in Capernaum. And so now we come to our text before us uh, this morning. A detachment of scribes had been sent from Jerusalem to Galilee, to Capernaum, the city in the Galilee. This is, this is Jesus' Galilean ministry, right? 
And what's changed with the scribes, the religious leaders, is they've moved from asking insinuating questions to really um, being an opponent or accusatory to Jesus. They picked up the pace. They're no longer saying, hey, why do your disciples not honor the Sabbath? They, they used to ask a lot of insinuating questions, still trying to trip him up. Now they're accusatory. Now they're, their dogmatism has picked up. They've been emboldened. And now they're going to accuse him of being of Satan. This text is fascinating. It's really fascinating. And so Jesus, as a master apologist, is going to answer their accusation that he is using the power of Satan to accomplish good, to heal people. What we're introduced to in this text is a, a kind of a strange uh, phraseology, and that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin or the eternal sin. What is it? Uh, how do you commit it? We should discover it today. This is part and parcel of why I decided to break it up into two. What is the unpardonable sin? Can you commit the unpardonable sin? This is all found here in 22 to 30. Now, one piece of context. This is a huge piece. Mark, in his pace, doesn't apply context. There's no reason why they're asking this question. It just all of a sudden the scribes say, hey, why are you healing by the power of Satan? Why are you demon possessed? Why are you uh, using Satan's authority to accomplish good? So he leaves out the incident. However, Matthew 12, 23 and 24 captures the incident right prior to this and then has the, the same text embedded in it. Jesus has just miraculously healed and cast out the demon of a blind and deaf man. So everybody saw it. It was miraculous. It, it was undeniable. And as a response to that, the scribes seeing it go, he did it by the power of Satan. So that's the context here. He has created, he has done a miracle right before their, their very eyes. He's healed somebody. And he was blind and deaf. So the trilogy of all the problems with this man has created such a miracle, such an undeniable miracle that they, they conclude that he is in collusion with the devil. That is their only response. They, what, what you need to notice is they don't deny the miracle happened. What they're questioning is, is by what authority did he do that miracle? See, now they're twisting it. They're, they're coming at him from a different angle. They, they're done with insinuating questions. They couldn't, they couldn't refute his logic, his mind, his, his, his Godhead, because he was bringing all the force and wisdom of heaven upon them. So insinuating questions are off. Denying the miracle would be crazy. They can't do that. So what they have to do is question by what authority is Jesus doing this? Now, this group, since 3-6, have joined up with the Herodians. And they are intent. They are intent of destroying Jesus. Their intent is to undermine him. The intent is to ultimately kill him. Verse 6 of chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as how they might destroy him. So they're not looking out for his best interest here. They're trying to discredit him. Right? 
And so they're going to try to deny the authority by which he does the miracles because they can't prove that there's any malice in the miracle. It was authentically a miracle. And so they're going to call him a liar, that he's using the wrong authority, that he's in cahoots with the devil. Now, here's what's important. Just FYI, just as a footnote, it's a side note. But faith and unbelief are never a result of proofs. People will never believe in Jesus Christ and give their lives to him because they see something. This is proof positive. The scribes just saw it. Matthew 12 recorded it. They saw a blind, deaf man and demon-possessed man. All three was healed miraculously. You would think they'd fall on their faces, repent, say, Jesus is the Son of God. I believe, I repent, I trust him for my life. They don't. It's true everywhere. It doesn't matter what you see. You know, if your heart's not open, if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. As Jesus said, if someone rises from the dead and they, they come before you, you still won't believe. You still won't have faith. And I think sometimes we, we hope that, that if someone just would see something or something would happen or the clouds would part, and you'd know God's will in some way. That if it was visual, you'd believe that's not the case. That's just a footnote. That's not what the point of the text is. But I just need to remind you that the scribes, they have studied Torah their whole life. They're highly educated. Now they've physically seen miraculous healing, and they still, they still do not believe. So this is what they're accusing Jesus of. Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. There's an exchange. Who, who exchanged darkness for light and light for darkness. This is what they're accusing him of doing. So you see from the text there in verse 23, he calls them in close. He wants to have a conversation. He called them to himself and he began speaking to them in parables. What's a parable? Just to remind you, it's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So Jesus is going to articulate some spiritual truth, but he's going to robe it. He's going to couch it in, in an earthly story just so it's relatable, just so you can grapple with it and, and kind of loiter and think about it and process Parables are designed to cause you to process. They're not easy to understand sometimes. And you're like, oh, I've got to think about it. They're designed to slow you down and to make you think deeply about a spiritual truth, right? So it's a profound truth, you know, wrapped in an, an earthly story. It's a short story with theology kind of embedded into it. So Jesus began to speak to them in parables, and it's... Purpose of use, his purpose in using parables is so that you won't be careless, right? That you have to grapple with it. You have to slow down. You have to take a look. You have to kind of like really think about it, which is a very good thing. He wants them to be thoughtful. He's a master apologist. That's what we're gaining from this section of Scripture. And so we ask these parabolic questions here. They are accusing him of being possessed by Beelzebul or gaining his power from Beelzebul. That Beelzebul is giving him supernatural strength, supernatural ability. This is of serious danger to them. 
This is of serious consequence. This particular sin has eternal consequences, right? Accusing Jesus of being the agent of the devil. That is the problem. And they stepped it up. They crossed the line. There was a line. Insinuated questions is on this side. They crossed the line. Now it's pretty serious. Now it's, you know, when you accuse Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, of being demon-possessed, you, you, you've really crossed a line. And so he begins with answering their accusation with three parables. First you see there, Verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? That is counterproductive, Jesus says. Right? Your cross purposes. Who Satan is, what he's about, his mission. It crosses purposes with the kingdom of God. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's crazy, Jesus said. It's both bad theology and bad logic. It doesn't make any sense at all. Everyone knows that it'd be absurd for the devil to, forget, to fight against the devil. That's civil war. That's ludicrous. It's crazy. And so he said, Satan, why would Satan cast out Satan? If, if it's true that you're accusing me of using the authority and I just cast out that demon, you see the connection? I just cast out the demon. I just healed this man. That would be absolutely absurd. Why would a demon cast out a demon? It just doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It's absurd. It crosses purposes and that's just not right. Why? Because you'd have a divided kingdom. Look at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. There's no strength with division. There, there, there's no unity in that. A house divided against, against itself will implode. It will crumble. It will be ruined. It's crazy too. It's ludicrous, right? Nobody has a divided kingdom. Nobody has a divided house. Even Satan knows you divide and conquer. You don't just divide, right? That would render Satan absolutely powerless. Total civil war. And so what Jesus does is he just deploys simple logic. And he wins the day. There is no future for a house that is divided. Beelzebul, that name that he's using for Satan here, it, it, it means to the house or a dwelling place. And it's interesting, the irony is how Jesus uses the very etymology of Beelzebul. He's, he's of the house of Satan, and Satan's house. A house divided against its house will not stand. It's crazy. It's foolish. It will completely unravel. Third parable he lists there. If Satan has risen up, up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he's finished. Kaput. He's crushed. It will go nowhere. But then he says, third parable, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder its property unless, the, unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. No one can break into a home when there's a big man there, a big, burly, tough fellow. You've obviously got to tie that guy up. You've got to conk him over the head, and then you can steal his goods. But you're not going into that house when that big fellow's there because he's going to hurt you. 
That would be foolish, Jesus said. That's not logical. You see, he's just kind of walking with them kind of through these little parables, but they're packing theology. So he's like throat chopping them with, with theology as he goes. There's some irony in the text, the strong man. Because you've got the strong man being Beelzebul, being bound, right, by Jesus, who's stronger than the strong man. He's better than the strong man. And he says, after tying him up and you neutralize him, then he can rob the strong man. So there's even an irony there that Jesus will crush Satan. He will be finished. There's all kinds of ironies. If they're listening for the theology, they would catch that. They would remember Genesis 3, that, 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 that Satan would be crushed, <clears throat> right, underfoot. If they caught that, they'd understand that Jesus is the, the strong man. As a matter of fact, since the beginning in Mark 1-7. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is stronger than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have the strong man. Jesus is stronger than even the strong man that would be plundered or tied up in this house. This is clearly a wordplay. He's clearly trying to make a point in the, the parable. Satan is the strong man, right? He's the principal power of this dwelling, of this domain, Ephesians 2. He has control over um, the sphere that we live in now. But Jesus enters into the house. He binds the strong man and takes the spoils. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. That's the point of his parable. But he's just using some plain old good logic. You can't rob somebody when the guy's home. It doesn't make sense. One that is greater than Satan has come. He has done this. He has crushed Satan. He has pushed back darkness. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus is God. He came in human flesh. He has the power to heal the, the diseases and to forgive sins. And so repent and believe. Jesus is superior than Satan, than Beelzebul, the dwelling, the leader of this sphere we're in. And so Jesus uses a third parable. So Jesus deals with their accusations. Their, better stated, blasphemies by using spiritual logic and just plain story that has theological import and theological training and instruction in it. And he declares his divine identity again. He is the strong man. If they've been watching and this crowd's been following him and they've seen everything that's going down, they would only conclude, oh, there's the strong man. I understand it now. But what they're saying, do you catch what the scribes are saying? He's an agent of the devil. They're not denying his power. They're denying the source of the power. And he just leaves them speechless. Now, this text, folks, is designed to cause some distress in us. What he's about to say next is it kind of is strange. It's almost off-putting, like, wow, are you kidding me? I mean, it's designed to kind of, like any text, as Vance Havner said, it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. They are comfortable. They are scribes. They think they've got this thing all figured out, and he is going to afflict them. But what I want you to know as we read this next section, it is not. It's spiritual instruction. And warning. It's not a fact. It doesn't mean it's happened yet. 
It is a warning that they are crossing the line, that they are getting dangerously close to having eternal consequences by what they're accusing Jesus of. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of a chilling warning. It's ominous. It's potential for all of us, right? They're dangerously close to crossing the line. Now, as we look at this, I want you to know that this has been misapplied over and over and over and over again in church history. He begins by saying, verse 28, truly, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men, and even whatever blasphemies they utter. Stop there. Truly. Twelve times it happens in the Gospel of Mark. Mark wants us to know that this is serious, right? He, when he uses the word truly, it's like earnest. It's like, hey, sit up, take note, look me in the eyes. You know, sometimes I'll say that to you like, hey, look up, right? I want your attention. This is an attention-getting statement. You're getting close to the line. Caution. Most people, however, breeze over verse 28 because they're so fixated on verse 29, where he states in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of the eternal sin. Wow. And that's where they focus. All sins are forgiven, and whatever blasphemies they utter, verse 28. So backsliders, persecutors, idolaters, Right? Dictators, mass murderers, all men. And this is how you have to interpret this passage. What he is saying in verse 28 absolutely is critical. That you can foolishly make statements. You can shake your fist at God. And some of you might have somewhere along your journey, somewhere along your life, you've lost your wits one day. And you went, I don't care what you think. You know, kind of that. That is not, that falls into verse 28. That's a verse 28 matter. All sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men. That's everyone, all of us, all men, the sons of men. What he's focusing on is what the scribes are doing. These are people who knew better. These are religious people who are crossing the line. These are people who teach the word of God. And all of a sudden they turn because they cannot, they cannot believe, they don't have faith, and they say, that's of the devil. Now you're in the category of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So the difference between 28 and 29 is all men of all of us fall into 28. These specific scribes fall into verse 29. But whoever, referencing the scribes, the religious elite, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of the eternal sin. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is it? Well, we know it has eternal consequences. It really is to denounce and defame or slander God. It's a permanent infraction against the true and living God. In the Old Testament, so you'll know that you capture the whole of Scripture. In the Old Testament, the penalty was death. Leviticus 24.6. So if you blaspheme God, over it was death. What he's talking about here in the New Testament and what is right before your eyes is when religious leaders call good evil and evil good and then attribute that to the Spirit. Because remember Mark 1, 7, 
and 8 says, I baptize you with water, but he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit pointing to Christ, energizing the doctrine, showing people who Jesus is, bringing about miracles to validate who he is. And when you look at that and say, that's not from God, that is from Satan, that is when you cross the line, and that is when you blaspheme the Spirit. So, verse 28 is an exception. We fall under the exception. You probably somewhere along the line has said something. Maybe you were careless. Uh, you weren't even a believer. And you mocked Christians. I think the Apostle Paul falls into verse 28. It is stated in Acts 9 that he blasphemed. And he wrote down Christians' names. And he had people killed. And he did all kinds of crazy things. He was a verse 28 guy just like you were. And that's why you can have forgiveness of sins. And anybody, there's no case in Scripture where somebody asked for the forgiveness of sins where it was not granted. It's, there's, there's never been a case written down in Scripture of that case. This is about religious people, those who know better, those who teach truth, that know Torah, that know the Word of God, and for a living, and all of a sudden they pivot and go, that's of the devil. That's from hell itself. That Jesus is demon-possessed. That is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So context is crucial. And there is a historical context here. And it helps us to interpret. So Jesus, while on earth, did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. It reveals who Jesus is. And when you say that he, the Holy Spirit, is now no longer doing that, that it's actually the devil that's doing that. Those who commit blaspheme the Holy Spirit do so by attributing it <clears throat> to the devil. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit requires a number of things, both in historical context and in theology. Let me go through them real quick. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the sin here that has eternal consequences, requires a number of things to happen. Number one, you would, have, you would have had to see the physical Jesus perform acts, miracles, Matthew 12. You would have had to seen that. You would have had to been there and said, that's not of God, that's of the devil. So this is, remember context, Matthew 12 says he had just healed and cast out a demon from a blind and deaf man. And you'd have to look at that and seen that and said, like they did, that's of the devil, right? It's not us mocking someone's hometown, making fun of Jesus's poverty, calling him an okay carpenter. That's not what blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, right? It's a sin specifically related to Jesus's earthly ministry. And he even states that in his editorial comment. Look down at verse 30. Why did they commit eternal sin? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. If you say regarding the works of Jesus that it is demon-possessed works and truth, now you're getting close. But you had to bend it. It requires a historical context. You would have to seen Jesus perform miracles. Okay? Two. Second. You have to willfully reject Jesus. 
It's not, however, rejecting him out of ignorance. We've done that. I did that. I could think back in high school when some believer witnessed to me before I knew Christ. And I remember this girl in typing class. And I went out of my way to mock her and to mock Jesus. You see comedians sometimes do this. Um, this is not out of ignorance or unbelief. This is people who should know better. And if you willfully reject Jesus, that's when you're in danger. Not when you reject him out of ignorance, right? It's willful, it's conscious, it's malicious. They were trying to destroy him, three, six states. And they saw it firsthand, and now they're picking up pace, and they're accusing him of being in league with the devil, in cahoots with the devil, partnership. Actually, verse 30, demon-possessed. Ah, there you have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's permanent unbelief. Permanent. God's mercy is abundantly offered to rebellious people like ourselves. And I'm grateful for that. I'm a recipient of that. You're a recipient of that. You've not committed. If you're concerned or you've ever been concerned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you have never committed the sin. You would have no concern. There would be no urgency. There would be no burden about that. You would be so hardened and so calloused. You won't care. You're just obstinate. You're just locked down. You're in a permanent state of unbelief. And, and you're, you're, you're not just doing it out of ignorance or because you're a goofball. But you're doing it because you know better and you know the truth. And you're then accusing him of being of the devil himself. So this isn't a sin of ignorance or foolishness. We've all been foolish. We've all been ignorant. This is ongoing, permanent, continual, brash, overt hatred to the point you then accuse what is good, evil, and evil, and you attribute evil to good. Right? So you're rejecting the Spirit's testimony. You're rejecting the Spirit's testimony saying, that is Jesus of Nazareth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him by faith. And you're just outright rejecting that. It's not ignorant blaspheme on the street. That's verse 28. Do you see why verse 28 and 29 matter? If you race to 29 and just try to figure out, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? If you're burdened about that, I promise you, you haven't. Because the, the very presence of the burden tells you that you still, there's hope and you still can repent and believe. And some of, some of you are, are teenagers in here and, and, and you, you haven't trusted Christ yet. And you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're around the truth. You hear the truth. But you're, you're not there yet. You've not committed the sin. You're not obstinate. If you're sitting in this room, you're probably not committed that sin, right? There's a 99.9% you know, .9 chance. And Jesus said, when you attribute my works done by the Holy Spirit to demon possession, you will be guilty of an eternal sin locked in. Locked in unbelief. And that's not a good place. He's not saying they've done it. He's saying they're dangerously close to doing it. So remember, he's not condemning them. He's instructing them. He's warning them. The question is, can someone commit the unpardonable sin today? That's a fair question. This verse gets a lot of people anxious. <laughs> I've had people come to me and say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I lost my mind, you know, two weeks ago, and I said this, 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 and this, and 
Therefore, there's no repentance left for me. I'm, I'm locked down. And, of course, you can assure them that that's not the case. The fact that they're coming for advice and counsel would state otherwise. Now, you can't commit this sin in the same way. One, you've never seen Jesus live and face to face, person to person, and you've never seen his miracles. And then, then take those very things you know to be true and attribute them to Satan. It, it can't be done the same way. But let me tell you what you can do, which is very close to this. It's the sin of unbelief. Not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, but the sin of unbelief you can commit, right? This was a sin for a specific time on a specific day with a specific group of people who were specifically locked down and attributing good to evil. But you can be dangerously close to unbelief, right? The sin of unbelief is a reality. That sin we can commit. That sin you have committed. At some point in your life, you were an unbeliever and you became a believer. So at some point, you were locked into the sin of unbelief until the Spirit of God opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. But it's not unpardonable, right? We've all been locked into unbelief, right? And if you're growing up in church, especially for the young kids, you're what we call a believing unbeliever. And you go to church, you, you pray, you talk to Christ, you read your Bible, your parents are encouraging that. That's a wonderful thing. Um, but you're a believing unbeliever. You're, you're not there yet. You're still in unbelief. You've still not yielded your life and submitted your life to the Lordship of Christ. Remember, he's either, listen to me, liar, which they're accusing of him, crazy, lunatic, or he's Lord. I'm contending with this passage to remind all of us, especially the young people, Jesus is Lord, and you have to submit your life to him. That's the point. Now, if you permanently reject Jesus, your life will not only be miserable in this life, but you will face death and hell. And at your last breath, you'll be separated from God. That's the sin of unbelief. It's not the unpardonable sin. Unpardonable sin, you're locked in. It's over. This is just the sin of unbelief, right? Obstinate unbelief. For some reason, you're holding on to your sin. You're holding on to something that's keeping you from yielding your life to Christ, right? And this is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6 2, today is the day of salvation. That's why as teachers, when John and I are up here teaching, we, we have, there's urgency about us. There's appeal. There's, I'm tr we're trying to reach your hearts. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. We don't want you to face Christ without knowing uh, Jesus Christ. We want you to have a relationship with you. We want you to repent. We want you to believe. We say, well, how do you know if you've done that? That's how he ends the whole section. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. True family, true spiritual family, true relationship, true unity. Jesus wants you to believe and repent. Don't harden your heart. Right? He wants to demonstrate grace. He wants to extend grace to you. It's a, it's a real offer to repent and believe. And no sin is beyond forgiveness today. And nowhere in Scripture is it recorded that someone asked for forgiveness and it was not granted. It's a beautiful thing. There's still hope. And so you've not committed the unpardonable sin, which is a specific sin for a specific time, that these scribes were actually doing what you can see before your eyes. 
So let's end with the question for all of us. It's fundamental. It's the, it's the simple non of all questions. It's the most important question, right? Do you believe Jesus is a liar? A liar. He's not telling the truth. He's crazy. Or he's the Lord of the universe. That's the question they faced that afternoon in Capernaum. And it's the question that's still being asked today. And that's why C.S. Lewis uh, taught about it. And it has been such a profound question. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, what is it? We pray that you'll say Lord and you'll submit your life to Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for giving us Mark 3 just to see how Jesus apologetically deals with um, his opponents, how he deploys apologetics, logic, how he even throws out a threat to them, that they're dangerously close to committing the unpardonable sin, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the eternal sin. Lord, thank you for forgiving us of our blasphemes, like verse 28 says, our folly, our stupid statements, our angry moments, and providing grace upon grace, really lavishing us with grace over the course of our lives, but especially when we were converted, we were walking in darkness and folly and foolishness, and then you put the light on us, you pushed back the darkness, you brought us to the light, you gave us faith, you allow us to repent and believe. I pray especially for the young people here today. They are a special burden to all the moms and dads that, Lord, that they would trust Jesus Christ. They do not need to be in fear of committing the unpardonable sin, but they do need to fear unbelief. And I pray that you, the Spirit of God, would deposit that in their hearts, that you would cause them to come to you and to hate their sin and to love Jesus Christ and to submit their lives to him. Lord, thank you for our study. Thank you for our church, our time in the word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.